Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. As a landscape architect, I've been managing design-build businesses now for a number of decades. Right now, our business has been in place for almost 40 years, and we've built literally thousands of residential landscapes. As a design-build company, we've been fortunate to be busy and innovative, and we've gone through some difficult downtimes, and we've enjoyed some incredibly creative and emotionally and financially profitable years. I mentioned in another podcast episode that a number of months ago, I was given a list of every employee we've had over my tenure since transitioning to own the company in 2000. The list is almost 400 people, and of that list, there were perhaps two dozen or more designers. Many of them are quite talented and have gone on to successful careers as independent designers and with, unfortunately, some of my competitors. Some designers lasted for over 15 years, and some lasted for about 15 minutes. If you're a landscape designer, you'll agree with me that it's a difficult job. We discussed in another episode the problems with landscape design education and how academics can be improved and needs to change in order to educate the oncoming slate of landscape designers and all the many facets of our fascinating work. Because the formal education is so lacking, over the years I've assembled a simple but comprehensive program that breaks the work out into a dozen components I call the dozen things we do. As we interview and onboard new designers, I've always said it's a difficult position to hire for. We're basically looking for a unicorn. Not only do you need someone who's able to draw in CAD and is well-versed in plant materials, but the candidate also needs to be articulate in construction materials and production technology. He or she must be able to work in an estimating and presentation system and be presentable and, of course, articulate with suppliers and clients. I tell my design staff that they need to be someone that a client will be comfortable giving a $50,000 check to because that is the kind of person that we are seeking. In our particular firm, the designer will sell and, in part at least, manage the work. I think that designers can appreciate this kind of arrangement as it keeps their head in the field and the plant material usually, the source of their passion initially in pursuing their career, while also taking on the more pragmatic considerations of project assembly and estimating and, of course, billing. These are things that are not discussed in an academic institution typically in the landscape design programs, and we're seeing difficulties, I think, because of that. This is not necessarily the kind of talent that you just find in any individual. With this in mind, as I've said, I've developed a fairly cohesive training system that I call The Dozen Things We Do. We'll be discussing this simplified list today in the podcast, and in so doing, we'll talk about how we can consolidate our thinking and improve our output by compressing and compartmentalizing our work in an easy-to-understand way. The Dozen Things topic is split into two action-packed episodes. Part one, this one, is number one, consulting and design. Number two, demo and hauling with transplanting. Three, grading. Four, soils and mulches. Five, drainage, and six, boulders and stone.
Part two is number seven, paving and steps, eight, carpentry, nine, planting, 10, irrigation and lighting, 11, water features, and 12, landscape care. The final bonus round is number 13, garden art. If you're in the design build realm of, of your green industry career, or you hope to be, you'll find that you are really doing the same kinds of things each day in your career. There is, of course, a good bit of deviation here, and therein lies some of the innovation and excitement. But really, the broad spectrum of what you do is a variation in one way or another on the same kind of theme. We're going to talk about those things today. I also want to note that I'm going to simplify these things to a great degree. When I'm hiring a new designer that's just starting out, there's so much to learn that it's easy to become overwhelmed with the amount of information that you need to know. With this in mind, if you are a new designer, listen carefully to this. Focusing on the dozen things, try to learn about six items in each category and focus more fully on production rates as well so as to better be able to determine installation costs. In this regard, you can get started easily without feeling overwhelmed and you'll be able to articulate ideas with some basic structure to them. If you don't know anything about paving, for example, concentrate on learning rates of installation, approximated square footage installed costs, and about six different types of locally available tumbled precast concrete pavers. This will go a long way toward your being able to specify and discuss materials with clients. This is especially true when we get to plant material, where even a well-versed veteran will only be able to barely touch on the amount of knowledge that is out there, describing the myriad of plant materials that are available to us. Keep in mind that we're regionally based here in the Pacific Northwest, and if you're listening to us from Puerto Rico or for, from Croatia, which I understand some of you might be, your work will differ a great deal. I will also be noting some pro tips throughout. These are little ideas that I think can simplify and make the work easier for you. You may not agree with some of the statements I'll make, but I hope that you will take a moment to absorb some of this stuff and use it to make your professional life easier. So let's get started. Let's start with the first thing that we do. This is the main aspect that we typically consider as landscape designers, and that is designing and consulting. Consulting, garden coaching, drawing plans, detailing, estimating, specification writing, and continuing project management overall. Landscape designers will approach designing and consulting from a number of different directions, and it will vary, of course, based upon the product that is being portrayed to the potential client, whether that's a plan, uh, for an installation or some combination like this. We talk about this in another episode where we talk a bit about the design package and design agreements as well. You might want to tune that in when you can. Suffice it to say that most designers will be billing out their work in one of three different ways, either as a lump sum or as an hourly fee or as a percentage of the work to be installed. Oftentimes it's a combination of these things where there might be an hourly fee for a plant set, let's say, and an ongoing percentage rate for the installation management. In some cases, there is no fee as it, it may be built into overhead and the installation will contain the work for the designer. The overall work needs to be organized according to a carefully choreographed meeting schedule. It's important to specify very clearly what the deliverables are and where and when they'll be ready. There are aspects of consulting that need to take into account the client demographic, what the potential client does for a living, perhaps their cultural background and expectations around pricing. We mentioned this again in another episode, but in some cases you have to be a marriage counselor to do this work effectively. Plan packages from designers will vary quite a bit. There is, of course, the basic planting plan, but some cases will include 
planting details or specification pages as well. It's not uncommon to see a designer supply a grid of plant pictures as part of a plan package. These are things that can be standardized and can appear to be quite custom, but are to some extent cut and paste and easy to assemble. The consulting itself might range from anything from an hourly rate for garden coaching up to a fully documented management arrangement with the client. Be aware of how you are organizing your billing, and I'm a strong proponent of organizing a CRM, or Online Client Relationship Manager. We talked about this in our Organizing Yourself as a Designer episode. Many new designers tell me that they are intimidated a bit with the need to learn CAD and get into computer-aided drafting. My feeling is you should just jump right in, perhaps with an AutoCAD LT package, and if you're a student, taking advantage of any kind of free software available for students. Just do it and don't think too hard about it. Start with your own property if you can. This will keep you motivated and interested. That's what I did, and once I completed it, I never looked back. The second item on the dozen things list is demolition and hauling. And just so I can shoehorn it in here and stay short of 13 overall, transplanting. Everything from overall property cleanups to brush cutting and hardscape removal and trash and debris hauling. When we're looking at demolition and hauling and cleanup, oftentimes we're faced with an area of cleanup that needs to be brush cut or that needs to be mowed or perhaps a hardscape area that needs to be jackhammered and removed. Oftentimes, this kind of work can be organized as time and materials, although there should be a general understanding of what goes into an overall dump load and how much a particular truck can carry. With regard to concrete or asphalt removal, there might be a square footage charge attached to it. A pro tip here is to be able to make a determination of area using Google Earth for estimating and then plugging in a number that is related to the area in question. When doing a time and materials bid, it's important to provide the client with what I would call a not to exceed number. This gives the client an outside edge to latch onto in which their investment will not exceed a preset amount. As in all things, be aware of safety considerations when doing demolition, especially of concrete. Concrete areas that are being demolished next to a home will require that you protect the windows of the residents. Bring large sheets of plywood for this and be sure to make sure that the operator is wearing appropriate gloves and heavy work boots, as well as eye and ear protection. I'm including transplanting here because it is oftentimes done early in the sequence of construction as we are clearing an area. When we think of transplanting, we have to take a number of things into account. The botanical that we are going to be moving, of course, and whether it's conducive to being moved at all. In some cases, I will tell a client that the investment to move an item is more than it would cost to simply toss the item and replace it with a new plant in its place. Certain things do not lend themselves well to planting, and you will find this to be true with much of the conifer materials. While they may sur survive a move overall, in some cases it's simply not worth the wait because of the slow growth in this kind of plant material anyway. The way to think of, of this is that when a plant is moved, we are typically severing a good amount of the root material, and as a function of this, the canopy of the material is going to die back to fit the new smaller root zone. The new thinking in horticulture is counterintuitive, and that is to try to move the plant material entire, that is not to prune it severely when moving. You'll, you will then let it die back to its concurrent size relative to the partially severed root ball. And based upon the time of year that it's being moved, when the plant does then die back, it's typically then a larger plant that can be pruned, with the knowledge of how big it really wants to be. 
A number of pro tips here about transplanting. The first is to use colored ribbon to determine the disposition of plant material at the beginning of the job. For my part, I use red, yellow, and green ribbon for this, and I carry it in my car. With a corresponding sharpie to make notes on the tape, I'll note red ribbon for removal, yellow ribbon for pruning, and green ribbon for transplanting. This was noted in another Green Meridian podcast episode that we call The Things That I Carry. One of those things is a good amount of surveying paint in an inverted spray can. This allows you to mark areas out and delineate a path and that type of thing. You can also mark a spot to receive the transplant, for example. Irrigation flags also can serve you well for this purpose. Keep in mind that the time of year is very critical with regard to moving plant materials. I characterize it for clients in a way that they can understand, that is, moving a sleepy baby. In autumn, you're moving a baby that's tired and ready to go to sleep. In late spring, you're disturbing a baby that's waking up. You can't walk away from that crib at certain times of the year. I'll also refer to the time of year in the form of a holiday for the client so that they can understand it more clearly than perhaps a date. For example, I'll note to them that it's best to move plant material after Halloween and before Valentine's Day. This is perhaps clearer to them than to say mid-October until the latter part of February. This is true in discussing seed for lawns as well. Do be aware that when you're discussing holidays, the audience that's receiving it, we're not going to be talking about Passover with someone who's celebrating Ramadan. The third item is grading, and this is something that vexes even the most talented designer. This will encompass everything from changing landforms to making level surfaces to creating tapered berm areas and leveling subgrades for paving or path areas as well. When we look at an area that is a tapering grade and we need to take steps to make it level, it's easy to overshoot the amount of cut and fill that's needed, or to conversely underestimate it in some way. We'll be talking about soils in a minute, but in discussing grading, the most fundamental understanding is to know the, about soil quantity for fill or for excavating and hauling. With this in mind, you'll want to know the area overall. And you're typically dimensioning the soil movement in cubic yards, sometimes in tonnage. You may be using tonnage as well, but in this case, we'll be talking about cubic yards. A cubic yard of material is about seven wheelbarrows of soil, let's say. You need about six cubic yards of material to raise or cut one inch of depth over an area of about a thousand square feet overall. This would be, let's say, parking for about nine or ten cars. And that's the pro tip here. If you're in a limited area and you cannot dimension it accurately because of time or equipment, you should look at it a number of ways. The first is you can look at how many cars you could park there if it was valet parking. Each car is about 100 square feet. Another way to is to count fence panels. These are usually about eight feet apart and you can multiply that out to get a length. Another way is to just pace it off by walking. You'll want to take a few minutes to measure your own natural pace in advance to see how it dimensions and get used to walking very deliberately in order to get a pace measurement. Keep in mind that certain kinds of grading will require a permit. Here in our local area, it can be a, a consideration of disturbing 2,000 square feet or moving over 60 yards overall. Be aware of this in your own municipality. Our fourth category is the broad range of soils and amendments, mulches and bark. When we consider soils overall, what I might suggest is that you not get too lost in the weeds, so to speak, with all of the many types of soil quantities and the prima donna aspects of the sources, composition and quality of compost in particular. This is a rabbit hole you don't really need to go down. I'd suggest that you simplify your thinking, and while there are literally hundreds of soil compositions on the market, consider primarily three types of soil. 
Again, these are all sold typically by the cubic yard or if bagged by the cubic foot, and the same kinds of dimensioning apply as one cubic yard equaling about seven wheelbarrows. Consider three basic types of soil to get started. These will vary, of course, based upon your region, but here in the Puget Sound, we're faced with the unfortunate occurrence of glacial till soils everywhere. These soils are very low in nutrient and tend toward compaction. This is not conducive for lawn areas, which is probably just as well, since lawns are being reconsidered everywhere now. Anyway, think of soils in three categories. The first is compost. Compost is a rich soil mix that contains a good bit of organic matter. It is disputable whether it's really needed as much as we specify it, in planting beds anyway. Listen to our landscape myth-busting episode about this particular topic and the research that's gone into it. Compost is what you are typically going to be specifying for planting beds overall and for planting pits in particular. This is the first type of soil. The second type of soil is what we call here locally a two-way mix or a finer soil. It is a mix of a loamy type soil with sand and usually used uh, for helping to smooth out and make grades related to a lawn installation. These types of installations don't lend themselves to compost because that kind of soil mix breaks down over time and tends to make the lawn area inconsistent or what we might call in the trade hummocky. The third kind of soil is simply fill soil, which can be actual native soil or can be a construction waste site soil. It's used to build up a grade typically or as a subgrade material. It can vary quite a bit in quality from being just absolutely awful to being a fairly rich compost in and of itself. Again, the three types of soil are compost, two-way mix, and fill soil. Regarding mulches and bed finishes, the first thing to say is that bark is somewhat of a landscape scam in my view. It's used all the time, and I specify it myself on a regular basis, but it doesn't really do that much to diminish weeds. I know that the anecdotal viewpoint is that it does, and in breaking down, mulches and bark do rob the soil of some nitrogen. But studies have shown that its main weed-inhibiting ability is in diminishing seed growth from above. This is, of course, useful, but it's not really the strongest selling point for it. The other thing to note is that a good rule of thumb, and a pro tip here, is to know that the coarser the bark, the longer it lasts, but the worse it looks. That is to say that the finer the bark or mulch that is put down, I think, the better that the bed will look cosmetically overall. But then again, the quicker it will break down and become soil and need to be replenished again. There's a certain symmetry and justice to that, don't you think? That's something to educate the consumer about. When we think about mulches, we want to consider basically three types as well. The first is what we call locally a fertile mulch or a fine mulch. In your region, this might be called something else. It's generally a ground-up fine bark, plainly described. The second type of material is what we might call a medium fine bark, or what most installations use as a standard type of bed finish. This is very commonly sold by the cubic yard or in bags. And the third kind is what we, call, we might call arbor chips or hog fuel. These are ground-up shavings from trees and perhaps the most effective type of overall mulching material to inhibit weeds, but are probably the least attractive kind. Our fifth topic among the dozen things is the problematic topic of drainage. This might encompass a catch basin and a simple pipe drain to a chevron-type large area drain system to culverts and rainwater harvesting, swales, and stream treatments to channel water. Drainage is an item that is often overlooked or is frequently installed badly. As a landscape designer, you're called upon to talk about this frequently, and no more so than here in the Pacific Northwest, where it is a serious problem for folks, especially in autumn. 
When we consider drainage, we're usually talking about one of two different types of installations, either flexible drain line or what we might call tight line pipe. This might be corrugated or solid PVC, and overall it can be sold in a wide range of sizes. The most common dimensioning for residential properties is four to six inch pipe, and the most common installation material here is the corrugated type. You've seen this kind of material coiled up and sold in 50 and 100 foot rolls. When it's installed, there are a couple of things to note that are critically important. The first is that with perforated pipe, oftentimes the drainage holes are located only on one side of the length of pipe. It would be in intuitive to think that the holes are installed facing the top, somewhat like a drain function. But in fact, the holes are laid downward. When you think about it, this makes the most sense. The bottom facing holes actually wick up the water that collects at the bottom of a trench and help to direct the water to its outflow. The most expensive aspect of drainage is frequently the trenching overall. And you have to think in terms of this kind of work and the kind of production that goes into it, as well as the corrective activity that needs to take place when the trench is covered and filled and cosmetically improved. When we dig a trench for drainage, we're typically filling the lower portion with drain rock, or what we might consider golf ball sized rock material and smaller, so as to give it a, a bed within which to convey the water. You'll also need an outflow location where the water can freely be dissipated into a bog or sewer system or sump or something of that nature. The pro tip here is an unusual one, and one that you won't hear very often, and that is to install a catch basin at the uphill location, rather than thinking of it solely for a collecting point at the bottom of the grade. In the Puget Sound, it's critical to have an uphill clean-out on a drainage system so that it can be rinsed out in the summer in order to keep the pipe clean. Again, this is a small catch basin put at the top of the drain that allows the homeowner to rinse the drain out briefly in the summer. The reason is that the fine nature of our soils tend to fill these drains up. You'll find that if you're doing design build work in particular, you're called upon to make a determination about an older drain that's failed often. It's my opinion that these are typically failing in large part because they don't have the ability to be flushed out. Another consideration that is counterintuitive is not to purchase the pipe in a socked form that is wrapped with fabric. It seems that the thinking would follow that this would keep the pipe clean, and that is, in fact, what it does. But in doing so, it blocks the water from entering the pipe, and as such, the pipe can become ineffective because it is wrapped like a burrito in wet earth and might be blocked from sediments that fill up the pipe. So don't specify socked pipe. Just specify an uphill clean-out and instruct in your specifications that it be kept clean. One of the most fascinating aspects of the work for me is working with number six here, boulders and stone. This is a broad category that can encompass a lot of different materials. To start, here in the Puget Sound, we'll typically specify basalt or granite, most commonly to make rock accents or for placements or small landscape walls. Basalt is also a more commonly drilled stone for water features, which we'll talk about later, in particular the Columbia River basalt. You'll want to think of the stone in sizes that relate to household appliances, I think, in order to convey the information clearly to a potential client. I'll tell clients that a one-man stone is roughly the size of a bowling ball to a basketball. A two-man stone might be a small microwave oven to the size of a small ottoman. A three-man stone might be a dishwasher or larger. A four-man stone might be a washing machine or larger. Similarly, we're also specifying various forms of drain rock and river cobble and gravel. It's important to make the clear distinction between crushed rock 
which is the subgrade over which we put flagstone and paving, and gravel, which is something that is typically used for drainage and you cannot compact it easily. In order of size from small to large, pea gravel is roughly the size of your thumbnail. Drain rock is roughly the size of a golf ball up to a baseball in size. River cobble is about the size of a baseball to a softball in size. And oversize river cobble might be anything from a large softball up to a bowling ball in size, as a rounded river wash stone that has a tumbled appearance. You'll typically specify this material by the ton, and it's important when talking about stone, about boulders in particular, to know roughly how many you're getting per ton. And this is not an exact size measurement per se, but you might consider that you'll get approximately 20 boulders of one man stone to a ton. You'll get about 10 boulders at the two man size. It's important not to confuse the distinction with what we call one man, etc., when the rock supplier calls it something different. The rock supplier is oftentimes going by a designation that it's based about, upon what one person can lever with a long pry bar. What a landscape trade contractor will typically consider is the stone size relative to what pers one person can lift. This is, I think, a clearer way to discuss it, although if you order it directly from a rock yard this way, you might end up with quite a bit larger stone than you'd anticipated, so do be careful about that. When we place boulders as accent stone, we might be placing something as an upright type of what we might call a spirit stone. This is usually done in an arrangement in which a basalt column or a huckleberry stone is used as an accent for artistic positioning. It's kind of an intuitive thing to do and to select and orient to the proper face, much like placing a large tree to its forward position for viewing. There is no specific rule about this except the intuitive understanding of what face of the rock looks the best. For a very large stone, you might be twirling the rock at the end of an articulated rock claw on an excavator in order to position it properly. So you want to be sure that to be there at the appropriate time to do that. There's also a specific type of placement in the orientation of spirit stones or accent boulders, and typically in one, three, or five combinations. This is somewhat of a controversial statement, I know, in and of itself, but if you look online and look up rock placement and a graphic showing this combination, you'll, you'll see that the typical proper placement is, or I should say most attractive placement is, a large stone with a second or medium-sized stone very close to it and the third stone off-angle. You might think of the larger stone at 2 o'clock, say, and the second stone closer in at 10 o'clock, and the smaller stone at 5 o'clock, for example. Large walls done in stone are going to be done typically by machine rather than by hand, and this needs to be factored in when specifying the work. To specify this kind of work, you also have to take into account the damage that would be done by the large machine coming in and off the property over and over. Make this part of your overall estimating for the work if you do. Flagstone and ledgestone are another aspect of stonework overall, and they might fit into wall work and paving as well, but we'll talk a little bit about them here. What are different types of stone that you might think of in terms of a pathway or perhaps a shoebox in size? That would be ledgestone in particular. It's a larger form of flagstone by type overall and can be quite thick, as wide and as deep as two feet as a rectangle or more. Typically, we're looking at a rough shoebox size when we talk about ledgestone. This will make a wall, of course, and in so doing is a moderately expensive form of wall construction. 
Flagstone comes in various shapes and sizes, including what we might call stand-up stone or large format stone to cover more area with a single stone, but less area with the tonnage aspect of it overall. Keep in mind that when you specify stand-up stone, in that you are going to get less coverage per ton because you're essentially buying less gapping between stones. Factor in somewhere in the neighborhood of about 70 square feet for paving per ton and half as much in face footage for ledge stone wall construction. Again, keep in mind that this varies quite a bit. Some of it is wastage and that type of thing. Try to ensure that your flagstone has a thickness of at least two inches or more, depending on the freeze-thaw conditions of your locale. Common stones here in the Pacific Northwest would include bluestone, Montana slate, many types of quartzite, and other types of flagstone as well, including cowboy coffee and others that have proprietary brand names. Keep in mind that many of the suppliers will refer to the stone with a name that they've invented, and in so doing, you might be able to find the stone under a different name at a different supplier and at a better price. Keep that in mind when you're looking at flagstone and ledgestone. So that brings us to a close of what I'm calling part one of the dozen things we do. There's so much to know in pursuing a career as a landscape designer. As I've said before, it's an almost impossible task. And I'm always amazed to learn about those that do it well and do it using natural processes and with passion and creativity. And I know it's heresy to say, but that can make good money doing it as well. I don't think that you will find a more difficult combination of mixed elements to master in the pursuit of your dream, from the weather to the materials to the delivery and installation of living things in all of their myriad sizes and shapes and combinations over the seasons. Throw that into the mix with a labor force that may not speak your language, and it's hard to imagine that the whole thing doesn't just go wrong immediately. And of course, sometimes it does. Coming up, please tune into part two of the dozen things we do, where we will discuss items seven to 12, jamming an overview of planting into the blender as well. And we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.